service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. I want to live The stories about Charlie Chaplin are insane. He had an affair with the girlfriend of the most powerful man in America, an affair that someone else may have caught a bullet for. He made fun of the Nazis a few years too early and found himself kicked out of the United States. He was held at gunpoint by a jealous lover nearly murdered by a cabal of Japanese assassins, and his corpse was stolen and held for ransom. And Charlie Chaplin made great films. Some of the most influential films of the silent and talky eras. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Peerless Quartet performing Where the Red Red Roses Grow in 1914. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. And why would I play you that specific slice of leave the gun, take the cannoli cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on April 10th, 1972. And that was the day that Charlie Chaplin was allowed legal re-entry into the United States after a 20-year ban so that he could receive an honorary Oscar. On this episode, Nazis, a cabal of Japanese assassins, a stolen corpse, and Charlie Chaplin. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season five, Hollywoodland. George Orwell was dying on a cold and rocky island in Scotland. Tuberculosis ravaged his lungs. He woke up at night, drenched in sweat. His chest burned. He coughed until his throat ached. He spat blood into handkerchiefs. He was 47. Orwell struggled with illness his entire life. But now he wasn't just ill. He was lonely and depressed. Ever since his wife died, he'd gotten in the habit of proposing to young women in letters. 
One of those women was Celia Kerwin. Celia turned him down. Most women did. But she was different from the others. She worked for Britain's Information Research Department, a propaganda factory right out of Orwell's own dystopian masterpiece, 1984, published just months earlier in June of 1949. Orwell was a political oddball, a socialist who spoke out against Stalin's Soviet Union. Celia went to visit Orwell at the sanitarium where he was dying. She tried to recruit him to write propaganda for the government. Orwell was too weak to do it, but he gave Celia the names of people she could ask, and also the names of people she shouldn't. There were people he didn't trust to be on England's side. If she really wanted to know more, he had his little notebook. What George Orwell handed over became one of the best kept secrets of the Cold War. It wouldn't be seen by anyone outside of British intelligence for more than 50 years, in 2003 when Celia's daughter found a copy in her deceased mother's papers. The notebook listed people Orwell considered to be crypto-communists and fellow travelers. He kept it for years, adding footnotes, crossing out names. Names like Catherine Hepburn, Alex Comfort, author of The Joy of Sex, Cecil Day-Lewis, poet and father of Daniel Day-Lewis. But the most famous name on Orwell's list was Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin's politics are tough to nail down. He let his films speak for themselves. But by the end of the 1930s, Chaplin would be forever linked in the public's mind with the most notorious man ever to step on the world stage. Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler were born four days apart in 1889. The similarities in their appearance was fodder for political cartoons since Hitler first came to power. Some even suggested that Hitler clipped his mustache to look more like Chaplin's beloved tramp character. Whether you buy that or not, the Nazis were not Chaplin fans. When Chaplin passed through Germany, Nazi newspapers scolded crowds for getting excited over the man they called a little Jewish acrobat. Chaplin wasn't Jewish, but he often got asked if he was. He stopped publicly denying that he was Jewish because he thought the denials played into the hands of the anti-Semites. The world didn't yet know the full extent of the horrors of Nazi Germany, but the country's violent anti-Semitism had been clear since 1938's Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. Violent assaults against Jewish people swept across Germany. Chaplin thought the best way to deal with Hitler was to satirize him. So he wrote a film in which he played the protagonist, a lovable Jewish barber and also the antagonist, a frothing, spot-on send-up of Adolf Hitler. No one but Chaplin could have made the great dictator in 1939. America was still on good terms with Germany. It wouldn't enter the war for another year. Most Hollywood studios did business there, and therefore wouldn't risk a boycott by the German government. But Chaplin was producing his own movies and distributing them through United Artists, the company he co-founded. He could make whatever movie he wanted. Germany banned the great dictator. It wasn't shown there for almost 20 years. Meanwhile, somewhere in Washington, D.C., the United States government started keeping a file on Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin gave them plenty of material to fill it. In addition to his personal scandals, more on those in a minute, Chaplin gave speeches supporting a second front to help the Russians. He spoke about the brave Soviet army fighting for the cause of freedom. Their boys were dying just like ours. He wasn't alone, but those who took a pro-Russia stance during the war became suspect as the alliance between the US and Russia collapsed into a cold war. 
Chaplin's speeches in support of Russian troops made it to the deaths of commie hunters like J. Edgar Hoover and Joseph McCarthy. McCarthy's House on American Activities Committee was especially interested in Hollywood. They were convinced it was a wasp's nest of secret communism, and they had useful tools for hunting reds in Tinseltown. The first was the Waldorf Statement, a proclamation issued by the studio heads after a 1947 meeting at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. It condemned communism, instituted loyalty oaths for studio employees, and effectively blacklisted anyone who ever associated with communists. Their second weapon was the network of informers the blacklist helped create. With actor Ronald Reagan at the head of the Screen Actors Guild, the Hollywood community turned on its own. You get dragged in front of HUAC, and the next thing you know, you're giving up a half dozen names. And the next week, those half dozen got their subpoenas served, and you might never work again. Chaplin was subpoenaed in the fall of 1947. The House Committee had some questions, like why he never applied for U.S. citizenship after being in the country for 30 years. Chaplin's response in the press, that he was a citizen of the world, didn't make him look any less like a fellow traveler. After three postponements, the committee informed Chaplin that his testimony was no longer needed. Chaplin considered the matter settled, except it wasn't. Chaplin had tickets to sail on the Queen Elizabeth back to England with his new bride, his fourth and final wife, Una. And there was just the little matter of his re-entry papers. They were delayed. Immigration called and asked Chaplin to come to the federal building and answer some questions. Better yet, they'd come to him. An FBI agent and a stenographer showed up at Chaplin's house. And the agent began asking questions. Was Chaplin Jewish? What could he tell them about his sex life? Chaplin wasn't sure why the agent was asking, since he seemed to know plenty about Chaplin's sex life in explicit detail. And how did Chaplin feel about communists? Chaplin said communists had won the war. They held off the Germans before America even got boots on the ground. And the FBI agent suppressed a grin. And the stenographer wrote the answer down. It was exactly the kind of statement the House Committee needed to string Chaplin up. And the FBI agent told Chaplin he could expedite the paperwork if he would just sign the transcript of the interview. Chaplin held the pen in his hand. He stared at the papers. It was a trap. He told the FBI agent he wouldn't need that paperwork after all. The Chaplins weren't going anywhere. Chaplin got back to work on his next movie, Limelight, an ode to the British stages where he got his start. The movie took four years to complete. When it was done, Chaplin insisted the premiere be held on home soil. And maybe he forgot about the interview with the FBI agent. Maybe he thought the temperatures had cooled. Either way, crowds cheered in New York Harbor as the Chaplins finally boarded the Queen Elizabeth bound for London. Chaplin felt at ease for the first time in years. He wasn't the subject of a federal witch hunt. He wasn't the most famous face in the world. He was a man on vacation with his family taking them to see the city where he was born. On their third day at sea, Chaplin walked by crew members huddled around a radio. He heard his name buzzing through the static. He stopped and listened. The U.S. Attorney General had revoked his re-entry papers. Immigration and naturalization services were under orders to hold him if he ever returned to the U.S. Chaplin looked out at the ocean. It was September 1952. He could see the vast, endless blue stretch out to the horizon in every direction, but he couldn't see the country of his birth or the adopted homeland to which he could never return.
The most famous man in the world was as far from home as he could get. On May 14, 1932, Charlie Chaplin dined in Tokyo with his brother Sidney and Toriichi Kono, a longtime assistant who grew up in Japan before moving to Southern California. Kono was Chaplin's guide and translator. Chaplin was a tourist. Everything he knew about Japan came from books, mostly pictures and books, because Charlie Chaplin was not much of a reader. But he could read body language. The six Japanese men approaching their table right now, they weren't looking for an autograph. They wanted something else. And by the looks they were giving Chaplin, they were going to do what they had to do in order to get it. Charlie Chaplin left the U.S. to tour Europe after the huge success of City Lights, his 1931 romantic comedy. He went to London, where he visited the poor neighborhoods where he grew up, talked economics and colonialism with Gandhi, and hobnobbed with the upper crust. He watched with disappointment as a conservative government sailed to an easy electoral victory. In France, police struggled to keep him safe from adoring fans. In Germany, where he dined with Albert Einstein, the Nazi papers dismissed him for the first time as the little Jewish acrobat. Companions and hangers-on dropped off, but Chaplin wasn't ready to return to his studio in the U.S. For the first time in as long as he could remember, he didn't have a new project to start. Movies were changing, and the changes threatened to render Charlie Chaplin a relic. I'd give the talkie six more months, he told anyone who'd asked. He didn't sound confident. The silent era was over and its biggest star didn't know where he belonged in the new world. Instead of going home, he headed further east, ended up in Japan. After the reception at port, Chaplin's entourage were taken by police escort to the steps of the Imperial Palace. On the way, a man approached Chaplin and invited him to come see pornographic silk paintings at the man's house. Strange? Um, yeah. Intriguing? Absolutely. But something about the man didn't seem right, so Chaplin politely refused. At the Imperial Palace, Hirohito wasn't in, but Chaplin was told it was customary for visitors to pay their respects to the absent emperor. Chaplin bowed on the steps of the empty palace. He didn't know that this bow, this one small act of deference, sent signals of approval to the wrong people. People who wanted to kill Charlie Chaplin. Japan's politics in the early 30s were a lot like those that allowed the Nazis to rise to power in Germany. Japan was struggling through the worldwide depression, and like Germany, the country's military power was restricted by international treaties signed by the prime minister. In Germany, Hitler rode a wave of nationalism into office. In Japan, members of the Navy Officer Corps formed a secret far-right cabal that called itself the League of Blood. Their mission? Overthrow the civilian government, install military rule with the emperor as its head. The League of Blood had already assassinated a former finance minister. And now, they had their eyes on new targets. The six Japanese men surrounded the restaurant table where Chaplin sat with his brother Sidney and his assistant, Torichi Kono. Chaplin knew one of them looked familiar, but couldn't place the face. Wait, it came to him. The guy who wanted to show him the silk porno prints earlier that day. Chaplin's stomach lurched. This wasn't going to end well. That man sat down next to Kono. He berated Kono in Japanese while five other men loomed over Chaplin in the universal language of a shakedown. Chaplin had nowhere to run. When the man was done shouting, Kono stared down at his dinner. And then he looked over at Chaplin. He says you've insulted his ancestors by refusing to see his pictures. 
chaplain heard what Kono wasn't saying and he sprang into action. He shoved his hand into his coat pocket like a stick-up man, pretending he had a gun. He shouted at the strange man in his best American accent, thick and blocky like a tiny gangster. And the men surrounding him were shocked and confused. They looked at the bulge coming from Chaplin's coat pocket and backed away slowly. And then they turned around and swiftly walked away. Chaplin scrapped his plans for the rest of the night. He returned to the hotel only to find their rooms and their luggage had been searched. The next day, Chaplin was scheduled to have dinner with the prime minister. If his world tour had taught him anything, it was the risks of snubbing a head of state. The year before, he'd been invited to participate in the Royal Variety Performance, an annual charity event. It's the event where, in 1963, John Lennon licked his lips impishly and told the crowd, For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. For the people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands, and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. What the Royal Variety Performance isn't is a royal command performance, a tradition as old as Shakespeare. For a command performance, performers are requested or compelled by the crown, not invited by an organizer. The British press didn't make that distinction. They accused Chaplin of thumbing his nose at King George. Chaplin didn't do himself any favors when he responded. They say I have a duty to England. I wonder just what that duty is. The scrap was rumored to have cost him a knighthood, or at least delayed it for 40 years, until Chaplin was 85. Knowing the risks, Chaplin decided to ditch the dinner in Japan and go watch sumo matches with the prime minister's son instead. Chaplin loved boxing, and at the end of a day of shooting at his studio, Chaplin would regularly pack up the cast and crew to go watch the fights. A night of sumo wrestling sounded preferable to a stuffy state reception anyway. Chaplin might even get a gag out of it. While Chaplin and the prime minister's son were at the matches, 11 members of the League of Blood broke into the prime minister's residence. They weren't just looking for the prime minister. They wanted Charlie Chaplin. The head of Japan's civilian government was an obvious target. One of the group's main goals was a coup d'etat that removed all elected officials in favor of a military junta headed by Emperor Hirohito. Chaplin had simply fallen into their laps. The members of the League of Blood believed that if they assassinated Chaplin along with the prime minister, it would spark a war with the U.S. that would unite Asian countries under the rule of Hirohito. The plan failed to account for the fact that Chaplin was British. But when they didn't find Chaplin at the prime minister's residence, the League of Blood settled for their first target. And they found him easily. They drew pistols and held him point blank at the prime minister's head. He begged the League of Blood assassins not to kill him in front of his wife and daughter. And the assassins told the women to leave the room. The door closed quietly behind them. And then the assassins opened fire. If I could speak, you would understand, the prime minister said to his killers as he bled out on the floor. Dialogue is useless, the assassins replied. At the sumo match, the prime minister's son was called away from his seat. He returned, sat down next to Chaplin, and put his face in his hands. When Chaplin understood what happened, he was shaken. He was supposed to be at the prime minister's house when the assassins struck. Could he have been a target? Could it have been him bleeding out on the floor? Nah, he was a comedian. Comedians didn't get assassinated, right? The assassination of the prime minister wasn't the only incident of violence the League of Blood carried out that night. There were bombings, more killings. Chaplin and his entourage scurried back to their hotel until the police could get the League of Blood assassins in their custody. Chaplin accompanied the prime minister's son to the scene of the crime. 
and the blood was still drying on the floor. At their court-martial later in 1932, the League of Blood Assassins revealed that Charlie Chaplin had been, in fact, a target of the plot. Chaplin wouldn't learn about it until 10 years later. And the League of Blood used the public trial as a soapbox to spout their views and advocate for the restoration of Emperor Hirohito to full authority. Hundreds of thousands of letters of support poured in. Nine kids in Nagata Prefecture offered to be tried instead of the assassins. They sent the court a jar containing their nine severed pinky fingers to show that they weren't kidding. But when the assassins were given sentences of only a few years, it sent a clear message. The fires of violent nationalism that were already raging in Germany and Italy had found fuel to burn in Japan, and soon the whole world would be ablaze. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Charlie Chaplin was staring down the barrel of a gun. The woman on the other end of that barrel had come a long way, all the way to California from New York City. He didn't know if she would actually do it, pull the trigger, if she had it in her. He wasn't even sure how to react or what to say. Chaplin had been on the business end of a metaphorical shotgun before. Rumor had it that his romantic escapades once landed a bullet in the back of someone else's skull. But this was his first time at literal gunpoint. He regretted giving her that money back in New York. How could he have known that she'd use it to finance her trip all the way across the country for the explicit purpose of shooting him dead in his own house? Chaplin had a thing for underage women. And in the early 20th century, the Hollywood star machine served young women to stars on a platter. Chaplin met his first wife, Mildred Harris, when she was just 16, and he married her when she was 17. After Mildred's mother announced to the press that Chaplin had gotten her daughter pregnant, the pregnancy turned out to be a false alarm, and the couple split after a few months. The divorce was ugly. It was 1920. Chaplin was in a battle with his studio, First National, about the distribution terms for his forthcoming film, The Kid. The movie had taken him a year and a half to make, a lifetime for a man who once churned out 71 films in seven years. Now Mildred was rejecting his settlement offer and hiring new lawyers, paid for by First National. They wanted to attach Chaplin's business assets to the divorce settlement, and those assets included the negatives of the kid. The film's cinematographer got a call from Chaplin in the middle of the night. Go down to the studio, Chaplin told him. Get the negatives, and then get out of town. And the cinematographer and his assistant packed the film into coffee tins, 12 crates worth. They drove the crates to Santa Fe. They met Chaplin at the train station. From there, the group sped to Salt Lake City, where they set up an editing suite in a hotel room. Handling film stock treated with incredibly flammable chemicals, they made a rough cut of the film. And the kid made its debut in the theater down the block from the makeshift cutting room before shipping to New York out of the clutches of Chaplin's studio and his ex-wife. That fall, the rumor mill went into overdrive. The gossip column in the New York Daily News wrote that Chaplin was having an affair with actress Marion Davies. Her fling with Chaplin may have only been a rumor, but her long-running affair with William Randolph Hearst, the powerful and married newspaper publisher, was very much public knowledge. After the Daily News published a squib about Davies and Chaplin's involvement, Hearst invited a party of Hollywood elite out on his yacht. The group included Marion Davies, film producer Thomas Ince, and according to some versions of the story, Charlie Chaplin. After only a few days out, 
the yacht returned to port in San Diego, where Ince was carried to shore, unconscious. Chaplin's assistant and friend, Toraichi Kono, was there to meet the boat, and he swore he saw a bullet wound in Ince's head. Ince died a few hours later. And there was no inquest, and the body was cremated within two days. The papers denied foul play. Hearst's papers denied there was even a boat. They claimed Ince got sick at Hearst's ranch, a day's drive up the coast. Chaplin claimed he wasn't on the boat, even though his assistant was there to meet him on the shore. And Marion Davies said there were no firearms on board, although Hearst kept a 22 on the yacht so he could shoot at seagulls. A little gun, small caliber. The kind of gun that might cause a head wound severe enough to cause death without being instantly fatal. And Orson Welles heard another rumor. What Welles heard, what he and screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz ultimately decided was too outrageous to include in the film they were making about William Randolph Hearst, was that the newspaper magnate discovered Thomas Ince and Marion Davies alone together in the lower galley of the yacht. In the dim light, Hearst thought he'd stumbled upon a tryst between Davies and Chaplin. Ince was about the same height as the little tramp. Hearst grabbed a seagull shooting pistol and thinking he was aiming at Chaplin, shot Ince in the back of the head. Before they got to port, Hearst swore everyone aboard to secrecy. Certainly, he was powerful enough to make one little murder go away. This was the man who started the Spanish-American War, after all. But whether or not they believed the story, Wells and Mank thought it was too much to include in their film. So Citizen Kane, a movie that hangs its central metaphor on William Randolph Hearst's nickname for Marion Davies' clitoris, cut out the story of Thomas Ince's murder. Chaplin had a few quieter affairs and two more marriages before he met Joan Barry in 1942. Barry came to Hollywood from Brooklyn when she was 20, dying to make it in pictures. Chaplin signed her to a contract and started sleeping with her. When Barry proved to be an unstable alcoholic, Chaplin canceled her contract and bought her a one-way ticket back to New York. Unfortunately, Chaplin's sideline as a political speaker in support of the war brought him to New York not long after. Barry found out he was in town and called repeatedly. Chaplin brushed her off. And then she showed up at Chaplin's hotel. He gave her $300 in cash, and that seemed to do the trick. He hoped it would be the last he'd see of her. Now, here was Joan Barry in the flesh, two nights before Christmas in 1942 holding Chaplin hostage in his own house in California. She paid her way back west with the money Chaplin gave her in New York. Chaplin's sons were with him that night, but when they found their father being held at gunpoint, he shuttled them into the rooms. According to Barry, the threat of violence turned Chaplin on. Their relationship had always been more turbulent than traditionally romantic. She claimed the standoff led to sex, and she left Chaplin's house on her own the next morning. A week later, she was back. Her return visit came on the advice of gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, who went on to prominence as one of the leading supporters of the House on American Activities Committee in the national press. Hopper heard Barry's story and suggested she break into Chaplin's house one more time to get things on the record. The reasons why would become apparent five months later. Barry returned to California pregnant, alleging Charlie Chaplin was the father. Her mother filed a paternity suit. Under California law, the burden of proof was on the father. Barry agreed to the blood test once the child was born. But before that blessed event or the trial that followed, 
Chaplin was indicted by federal authorities under the Mann Act. They said he paid Joan Barry to travel from California to New York City for the purposes of sex, setting her up there in advance of his visit. Chaplin was ultimately vindicated at trial, and there was no evidence he had sex with Barry while he was in New York, and he'd never been alone with her, but the blow to his reputation was severe. The paternity trial was even worse. Blood tests showed Chaplin couldn't be the father, but blood tests were inadmissible in California. Barry's lawyers dredged up Chaplin's long history of involvement with very young women. There has been no one to stop Chaplin in his lecherous conduct all these years except you, her lawyers told the jury. You'll sleep well the night you give this baby a name. And the jury declared that despite scientific evidence to the contrary, Charlie Chaplin was the father of Joan Barry's child. The paternity trial achieved what all Chaplin's messy divorces, dalliances, and underage starlets and sex trafficking accusations couldn't. His reputation was in ruins. It didn't help that his next film, Monsieur Verdot, had Chaplin playing a bigamous wife murderer. America was finally ready to kick the little tramp to the curb. March, 1978, a phone rang in the Boston field office of the FBI. The person on the line had information about Charlie Chaplin, the subject of FBI interest for years. But J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director who included Chaplin in the long list of suspected communists that haunted his paranoid psyche, was dead. And so too was Charlie Chaplin. The call was from a businessman in Portland, Maine who spoke with a local psychic he claimed was one of the strongest in the area. The psychic said that she knew who stole Charlie Chaplin's body from his grave in Switzerland five days earlier. She knew why they'd stolen it, and she knew where the body was now. Charlie Chaplin lived a quarter century in exile from his adopted homeland. He refused to contest his revoked re-entry papers when he sailed away on the Queen Elizabeth in 1952. Instead, he sent Una back to the States two months later. She dug up the small fortune Chaplin had buried in their backyard, sewing the bills into the lining of her mink coat to bring back with her abroad. She sold the house in the Chaplin studio, and she wrapped up what remained of United Artists. The Chaplin settled in Switzerland on Lake Geneva, and Chaplin never sought American citizenship. Una renounced hers. He made two more films before dedicating his time to re-editing and re-scoring his older films. He came back to America once in 1972 to accept an honorary Academy Award. The film industry had been forced to reckon with its complicity in the Red Scare and the history of the Hollywood Blacklist. The Lifetime Award for Chaplin was part of that. And so was the 12-minute standing ovation he received from the crowd. Once the applause died down, he went back to Switzerland. In 1975, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, four decades after her grandfather, George V, had declined to do so. Chaplin had suffered a series of strokes and wasn't able to get out of his wheelchair to kneel before the Queen. On Christmas morning, 1977, Chaplin died at home in his sleep. He left over $100 million to Una. She laid him to rest in a small ceremony at a cemetery near the family's home, but his body 
didn't rest there long. On the morning of March 2nd, Una Chaplin got a call from the cemetery. Charlie's body was gone. There were marks in the mud where it had been dragged. Tire tracks led to the nearby road. The search for Chaplin's body was international news. Speculation was rampant. Some said neo-Nazis stole the body and desecrated it as revenge for Chaplin mocking Hitler and the great dictator. The psychic in Portland, however, had a different vision. Hers involved three grave robbers, two men and a woman, all Germans. In her vision, they stole the body because they hated Americans. But like the assassins in the League of Blood, they failed to notice that Chaplin was British. According to the psychic, they had the body in Durham, Germany, and had no intention of asking for a ransom. And the FBI agents in Boston passed the psychic's tip up the chain of command, all the way to FBI Director William Hedgecock Webster, who relayed the information to authorities in Bonn. And the Swiss authorities thanked Webster, but informed him that the body snatchers had already phoned Una Chaplin with the ransom demands, to the tune of $600,000. Una refused. Charlie would have found their demands ridiculous, and there was no way she was going to pay them. And the calls kept coming. The police tapped Una's phone and stationed officers to stake out 200 payphones in the area. Five weeks after the body disappeared, they caught a man phoning in another desperate demand for cash from Chaplin's widow. Roman Vardas, a 24-year-old Polish refugee, heard all about Chaplin's death along with the rest of the world. He also heard all about Chaplin's money, money that now belonged to his widow. That $100 million inheritance, more money than one person needed. Roman Vardas needed money. That led him to an idea. But now he was leading police to a body, buried in a cornfield a mile from the chaplain's home. He explained they hadn't planned on stealing it. They were going to stage a grave robbery, digging up the coffin, reburying it deeper in the grave and covering it up. And after they got their money from Una, they'd reveal the chaplain's body had been in the grave the whole time. But it rained the night of the crime, and the mud in the grave turned to soup and a real grave robbery became easier than a fake one. Roman Vardis was sentenced to four and a half years hard labor. His partner, who'd only driven the getaway hearse and helped rebury the body, was let off with a suspended sentence. Vardis wrote to Una asking for forgiveness, which she gave him. And Charlie Chaplin's body, now sealed in concrete to prevent another theft, was put back in its original plot in Switzerland after one last adventure. An adventure that might have amused the little tramp and a dark final story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.